Hello, and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening in. My guest today is Kirk Bostrom. He's the managing partner and chief portfolio manager of Strategic Preservation Partners LP. He's been a successful Silicon Valley private investor for several decades. Kirk entered the financial scene in his early teens as a runner on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade, and he spent over 30 years in the investment securities industry. If you would like to support this podcast, you can become a patron of this show by making a small monthly contribution through my Patreon page. To do that, you can either search for me on patreon.com or use the link on the upper right-hand corner of my website, that's kunstler.com. And now kick back and enjoy my conversation with Kirk Bostrom. I'm here with Kirk Bostrom from Silicon Valley and from Strategic Preservation Partners. And uh, we're going to chat about the world financial situation and, and see, what, see if we can make some sense out of things. So, Kirk, you know, there are a lot of kind of interesting, informed commentators out there. And uh, perhaps you listen to some of the same ones I do. And their views are really kind of hard to reconcile. For example, you know, you have a guy like uh, Martin Armstrong, who's, uh, you know, kind of a, he kind of a wild hare, we might say. Um, uh, he sees the Dow going to 40,000 strictly because of uh, capital flight from other places, just, you know, pounding into the uh, American stock indexes. Um, and then you see, you, you know, you listen to a guy like Grant Williams. Uh, I, I guess he's from Australia. And, and he sees a, uh, uh, a growing inflection point in the markets, uh, you know, leading him to a very dark and rather bearish point of view. And then you listen to another weird guy like Richard Duncan talking about creditism. You know, the idea that... Uh, uh, money printing can go on indefinitely because uh, because the bonds are self-extinguishing. And it's hard to make sense of these uh, people and, and these views. And, and I do think that the people out there are having a hard time making sense of events and, and circumstances. So uh, how do you feel about the, just the, the noise out there? Well, James, first off, thanks for inviting me to, uh, to be on your uh your broadcast. Uh, it's, it's great to be here today. Um, and, and I'm with you. I think there's, there's lots of uh, varied opinions. And of course, Wall Street will, will stick to the uh, traditional line of, uh, you know, being long stocks and being long risk. Because at, at the end of the day, most, as most people know, I have nothing against Wall Street, uh, but that's how they make their money. They want most investors or other people's money that they might be managing into risk assets, including stocks. So you tend to get the same type of a uh, uh, right or wrong, you tend to get the same type of a long-term consensus out of Wall Street, and you know, from the Goldman Sachs to the Morgan Stanleys to the Merrill Lynches and, and the banks and so forth. Um, so a lot of noise. I mean, I, to simplify it all for us, and one of the reasons why I, I got back involved in running a, 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 a private fund here on the West Coast is um, we've had a cycle, a, a cyclical world here, uh, both here and abroad, uh, where we've got these risk-on and risk-off periods or booms and busts. That seem to be coming on board every seven to eight years, and you can literally go back to 1974 and and take them all the all the way through. And of course, they're occurring in different asset classes, from from oil and gas to to internet stocks and technology that many people are familiar with out here, of course, in, in the tech bubble, internet bubble of 2000, mm-hmm. and of course the real estate credit bust of 2008. So here we are, eight years later, and and one of the things that 
that we've been paying close attention to and uh, is what's been taking place in something that you don't see on CNBC or some of the other media uh, outlets, which is the bond market. And uh, the net-net the uh, is that we believe there is a massive bubble in, in bonds. And what's interesting about bonds or scary at the same time for really, I think, for everybody that's, that, that should be paying attention to it is that the bond market around the world, and particularly in the government sector, public sector debt, including municipal bonds or tax-free bonds, a lot of people get involved in, the bond market is three times larger than all the stock markets in the world, market cap of all the stock markets in the world combined. Mm-hmm. So if you put a pinprick into an internet stocks out here when 2000, we saw what took place in other risk assets, including broad stocks and even real estate. And, but it was different. It affected different people in different ways. Not everybody lives in Silicon Valley, and not everybody was loaded down with tech stocks. If you put a pinprick in the real estate market, we saw the home price market, uh, particularly here in the United States uh, in 2008 and 2009. We saw the correlated effects on other assets and so forth. But what people I don't think quite understand and, and, and I have to get our arms around it because it's, it's so large. It, it's many, many trillions of dollars around the world. If you put a pinprick along the way here, which I think is coming, in the bond market, in the global bond markets, and you start to see interest rates rise and bond prices fall, the fallout, which Martin Armstrong and some of these other people are talking about, is going to be something in the volatility and the tumultuous marketplace and economy and financial markets combined, all this is going to be something we probably haven't seen in anybody in our lifetime. Nobody's been around to see anything like that in the core economy of the world uh, today. So I think we're, we are heading into some major volatility, and it's going to create some, uh, you know, some, extor- some, some markets that are extended in certain directions and others and, 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 and falling and so forth. And, and that's what we think we have to look ahead for uh, here in the uh, – literally in the quarters or short years ahead. I think we're getting to a, to a crescendo here relatively quickly. Okay, and, and it's basically a big wobble, but um, uh, you know the way that these disorders express themselves can be, for one thing, highly nonlinear and, and surprising. And, and we're also talking about um, disorder that can express itself um, not just in markets, but in currencies. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the things... James, that we've, we've been believers of. We've been running this 35, 40-year experiment in Keynesian economics. Uh, and, and basically what we mean by that is we've seen this fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, gig going on. If you look at long-term interest rates, secular interest rates, both here in the United States, in Europe and Japan, and, and pretty much everywhere in the world, you're going to see a long-term decline in interest rates taking place since 1980 when Volcker was the Fed chair and he raised short-term rates in the U.S. We saw those 15-20% rates. So rates have been coming down dramatically. So whenever we had a problem in the U.S. economy, for example, uh, the fix was, well, you know, the Fed will just come in and lower interest rates. They'll cut rates by 25 basis points or 50 basis points or whatever. And then, of course, we've seen the borrowing spend, right? We've seen the government uh, putting together these stimulus packages and borrowing money and spending it in the economy to kickstart the economy when we have a slowdown uh-huh. in GDP or slowdown growth. So the, the long story made short – we've, we have gotten to a point now, and it's speeding up even faster by the month, that the pedal to the metal in borrow and spend, uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, monetary stimulus, negative interest rates around the world, uh, this is something that, that we're paying very close attention to out here because the amount, for example, of negatively, uh, negative interest rate debt 
government that around the world is exploding literally by the day. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, uh, I think the number tonight is somewhere around 13.5 trillion with a T dollars of government debt around the world is now trading at negative interest rates. So what that means is people are willing to lend their money to Japan or Germany or Switzerland or whoever at, and let them hold their money and pay them an interest rate, a yield. To, and this is unprecedented. Yeah, but hold on a second, Kirk, because, I mean, the catch is, you know, you, with, with zero interest rate policy and bonds that offer no returns, the only thing that's really holding up the value of the bonds is the willingness of the central banks themselves to buy them. Correct. So that when you say the people are buying, you know, uh, people are buying bonds that they have to pay to hold, it's not the people, it, it, it's the central banks. Uh, especially when you're talking about Japan. I mean, nobody's buying uh, uh, Japanese bonds except the uh, Central Bank of Japan, for example. No, I, I, I agree with you. But, but uh, you know, there's a fair amount of hoarding taking place among the wealthy uh, in, this, in, in the world right now. There's a fair mm-hmm. amount of uh, – you'll see – you're also seeing cash levels at most management – even as we sit here tonight – the cash levels that money managers in the United States alone is at near a record over the last decade. I think we're running; they're running about five to six percent cash. Uh, you know, literally, literally sitting in cash. You've got a fair amount of hoarding. Um, and you're right. There's no question the central banks are are the scheme, quantitative easing. Uh, you know, this uh, money printing, as it's called. You can see it reflected in their balance sheets that are going through the roof. I think Japan tonight is trading their, the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan is about 100% of GDP. Uh, their debt to GDP right, right now tonight in the Bank of Japan or J- Japan in, in, in general is trading close to 250 to 300% debt to GDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greece, for example, is it, call it Greece is roughly 200% debt to GDP. We saw what happened in Greece in 2011 and 12 when their interest rates went, you know, their, their, their bonds traded at half price. Interest rates went sky high. Uh, tonight, the U.S. is trading somewhere around 105 to 100, you know, 105% call it debt to GDP. So, and, and of course, in the U.S., we know what's taken place over the last, simply over the last eight years. We've added, we had $9 trillion on the books uh, eight years ago or seven and a half, eight years ago tonight, we've gonna, we're approaching 20 trillion on the books. And of course, all the estimates, regardless of your politics, both Republican, Democrats, independent, it really doesn't matter. Most people are projecting the debt will explode based on the policies that are being presented on both sure. sides of the aisle over the next five to 10 years. So well, Kirk, well, um, I, I did happen to catch Richard Duncan on David McElvaney's podcast this week. And uh, are you familiar with Duncan at all? Uh, a, a little bit, but tell me. T- I well, did not. What, see what do you make of his of this idea of his uh, that you can uh, print money and 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 do these QE operations indefinitely because the the debt is self extinguishing because you know a central bank prints in quotes you know prints more digital money and buys government uh, bonds and the Federal Reserve gives the interest paid back to the government. And that extinguishes the loan. First of all, is there any truth to that, or is he understanding this correctly? Or, and how long can it go on? Because it seems an awful lot like a racket. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, two things. Number one, in terms technically, and I don't have all the, the figures in front of me, but the cross collateralization of of the Federal Reserve with. Uh, with the central banks in Europe, both the ECB, mm-hmm. European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, uh, are, are the, the integration between the two, the cross-collateralization, the, is so deep 
that I don't think that's possible without a complete meltdown in the financial system. And I would be an Armstrong guy on that and tell you that we're going to have to have a whole new monetary policy system, a whole new system in place. And hopefully there's one under the table uh, for, that, for that to take place. Yeah, that's, this is one of the puzzling things to me when I listen to a lot of these guys is that you know, they have a kind of a schematic or diagrammatic understanding of what's going on with no sense of consequence. You know, right. with, with no sense of the deformations and perversities that are being created in, in the system. You know, whether nope. it's the markets or the currencies or, you know, a, a, any way of, of expressing the idea that's, that you have to establish the value of something. Yes, absolutely. And I think to that point, I'll, I'll simplify what our thesis is and what, what, what my thesis is in terms of where we are in the cycle. I mentioned the 35 to 40 year Keynesian experiment of declining interest rates. And now we're taking the whole yield curve of every government, <laughs> every advanced economy in the world negative. Uh, and it's not beyond the realm of possibilities that tonight with the 10-year treasury trading where it is, uh, U.S. 30-year trading at, uh, at a 2.2%, two, it's not beyond the realm of possibilities that the U.S. yield curve could go negative itself. No, not, mm-hmm. it's, it's obviously very, But the net of it is the Keynesian experience, experiment is not working. Lower interest rates, negative interest rates, money printing, uh, borrow and spend, $20 trillion that's already been spent. We'll spend another $10 trillion over the next five years, whatever the number is. It's not working. The global economy is slowing. The U.S. economy is at 2%, 1%, somewhere between 1% and 2%. It's barely, with all this stimulus, with negative interest rates, all this government, you know, it's not working. And what I believe going back to the Austrian economic thesis from many, many years ago, Ludwig von Mises once said – and I use it as a mantra when I run this fund, which is if you don't voluntarily abandon credit expansionary policies, i.e. what we've been seeing in these Keynesian borrow and spend lower interest rates, if you don't voluntarily abandon those policies, you will see a catastrophe of the currency. And I strongly believe that we are on the cusp, if not already in the midst, of a global currency war. And I think you're going to see, we could even see some of it tonight. Tonight, the Bank of Japan is going to come out with their stimulus package. Uh-huh. Uh, they've already met a fiscal package that was more high, greater than expected. Uh, they're talking about what they call helicopter money. Ben Bernanke, I think it was just two or three weeks ago, spent some time in Tokyo meeting with Abe, meeting with uh, Kuroda, the uh, uh, Bank of Japan uh, chair, talking about helicopter money. Helicopter money is different than quantitative easing where you just buy the bonds. Mm-hmm. Helicopter money is when you create money out of thin air. You move some digits on a computer and all of a sudden the central bank creates a trillion yen or whatever, or five trillion yen or whatever the number is. And they take that money and they give it to the ministry. Well, there are various ways you can do that. I mean, uh, right. one of the common popular ones is just to give people tax breaks right. and refunds. Uh, you know, another one is to, is to have um, giant make work programs. And that's, that's what could be coming even as shortly as tonight, and that could be the next uh, in the sequence of pedal-to-the-metal absurdity yeah. of central banking. But the net of it is what, what the Austrians said was that at some point you, you blow up your currency, and that's where I differ from uh, the gentleman that was talking about they can just abandon, they can just give up and forfeit uh, on, on a certain percentage of the debt. Yeah. Uh, two things. I think, I think we're going to see... Uh, the euro is in serious trouble. I would not. I don't think the euro makes it. If you look across, not just financial and economic parts of Europe, if you look at what's taking place socially, politically, geopolitically, a Euro, eurozone uh, with 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 across uh, the yeah, new the, uh, the instability is really off the charts right now, and it it's especially striking because in our lifetime, 
you know, Europe has been kind of a, a extremely stable theme park. And right. we forget <laughs> that in our parents' time, it was a slaughterhouse. That's right. That, that, and that was apparently one of the reasons why they started uh, you know, the, the EU and sure. they, they created the currency in the first place going way back in time to say, let's, let's, let's stop fighting. Let's, let's figure out a way to prevent wars and all those kind of things. Yeah. But I, I, I do think the euro is in serious trouble. I think the yen is even deeper. It might be uh, the second in terms of cascading dominoes that are to fall. I think the one thing that I would tell you is I'm extremely bullish on the U.S. dollar in the near term because at the end of the day, um, you know, people spend too much time in this country looking between New York and L.A. and they don't open their eyes to see that it's a big world that's awash in liquidity. And to Armstrong and some of the other people out there that talk about money coming to the U.S., I think we haven't even seen anything like we're going to see. I think it's going to become huge. Our markets are the only ones that can take the types of trillions of dollars that could potentially pour in here. And if you're sitting in a Greek bank or an Italian bank that's, that's on, on the cusp of going under uh, or in France or wherever, you think the euro's in trouble and you're looking for a place to hide, you're going to come here. You're not going to come to Russia. You're not going to go to China. You're not going to go to Japan for certain. Uh, and so I do think in the near, near term to intermediate term, the U.S. dollar be, is going to be the trade. And being short yen, getting out of short euro. Uh, and, of course, the strong dollar has implications for gold. Uh, Probably in the short term, negative implications for gold, although I know, I know a lot of people like to talk about gold now. Um, but there's, there's negative implications that you cannot have. I mean, if, you, if you believe the charts, you cannot have a strong gold price if you're going to have a strong dollar at the same time. Uh, so uh, that doesn't mean gold won't have a run which it probably can have a run down the road. But in the near term, I think the dollar is going to be strong. I think commodities are going to be under pressure. Uh, and I think bonds are going to start to leak like they did in 2011-12. In Europe, remember, we had the sovereign, sovereign uh -huh. debt crisis with Greece mm -hmm. and so forth. And, and uh, eventually, we're going to see uh, uh, money flowing out of bonds into some of these other assets, which could include stocks. I, I'm not sure I get to where Martin Armstrong is, at least in the near term, yeah. because I think the world's still normalized out there. Most people don't see the crisis yet. Most people aren't prepared for the crisis yet. And so when risk comes off, uh, you're going to see money pouring most likely into the front end of the yield curve. Even if it's negative here in the U.S., you're going to see money pouring into treasury bills looking for safety and hiding under rocks and so forth. And uh, that's probably the first move before we get an Armstrong type of uh, I think he talks about the public to pri private to public transfer of wealth from people moving out of bonds and public assets into the stock market and so forth. That could come, but I don't think that's coming right away. Well, um, I, I think that that's a, uh, a reasonable view, um, although you, I would carry something maybe a little bit further and maybe um, put in kind of a Jim Rickards idea that uh, you know we're dealing with the, the nonlinear behavior of extremely fragile, complex systems. And strange things can happen. And when we talk about liquidity, it raises for me the basic question, how much of this so-called liquidity is notional wealth that could very easily go up in a vapor, you know, turn out to not really represent any real wealth via, you know, a kind of a, of a mirage? Are you? Are, yeah, I mean, if you're referring to a to a, to a hyperinflation type of a situation, the uh, uh, where where money money becomes essentially you know wheelbarrows barrels of money in uh, in Germany and the uh, well, that's uh, one way the, that it can yeah. express itself, but, right? But, but you can also see blowups in all kinds of instruments and markets that would render uh, what what were su supposedly uh, you know instruments of notional value um, uh, just evaporate, go down yeah. to nothing. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, I, I think all bets are off. Uh, I, I think anything is possible. And as you and I both know, and we, we've talked about before, uh, it, anything can happen and most likely anything and the unexpected will. Um, but, you know, I, I, basically, basically you're talking, if that was to happen, you know, you're talking about a depression, you're talking about sure. the end of the monetary system. I think these systems, the, the, um, the risk of a, uh, uh, of contagion within the monetary system is extremely high. And if you, for example, I'll give you one that's right on our docket right now. That I, I tell people, if you really want to know what's going on in the world markets right now, there's one stock you should follow. Follow Deutsche Bank. DB is the symbol. David, David Bob, Deutsche yeah. Bank. Deutsche Bank's the second largest bank in the world. It's the number one bank in Europe. And it's the largest holder of derivative contracts mm-hmm. uh, in, in the world. And, it's and, now- and they reported a uh, uh, 100% uh, or, or 99% uh, fall in their profits yesterday exactly and and they their stock is down 80 90 percent uh over the last three to five years uh, it's, a, it's, it's it's essentially in free fall uh and it is the glue that holds together europe right now and quite frankly i wouldn't even want to know uh the the again the correlation between deutsche <laughs> bank and some of the u.s banks which we know is there across yeah. a, across uh derivatives contracts and uh, to your notional points and all those things so uh i'm watching that one very very closely because you say okay what's the next catalyst to the risk off to a sell-off in markets to the next you know to the to the to, i say the risk off uh, uh around the world and that's one at the front of our at the front of our docket. And of course, there are many others. Geopolitical risk right now are as high as ever. Yeah. Well, uh, the, one, one popular things. theory um, regarding the uh, European banks is that um, uh, Germany does have the uh, financial mojo to take over and nationalize Deutsche Bank. But Italy, which, which has uh, much more fragile banks with, uh, I guess, the highest... Uh, uh, ratio of non-performing loans of the, all the European banks, Italy doesn't have the mojo to nationalize its insolvent banks. Don't you think Italy is, is the, the problem child for the moment and the banks in Italy are the, the most uh, liable to blow up first? Yes, I, I, I believe that to be the case. In fact, it's reflected in my portfolio of our fund that we run. Because we, we are, not to give away too many secrets, but we're, we happen to be short Italian debt right now relative to U.S. debt. And I'll tell you why. This is, this is how kooky the markets are, James, right now. Tonight, 30-year Italian paper that's rated triple B on the cusp of being downgraded to junk, junk bonds. Uh-huh. Triple B Italian paper is trading at a lower yield <laughs> or higher price than triple A U.S. paper. It's amazing. Go figure that out. <laughs> so, it doesn't make any sense at all. No, no. Uh, I think the 30-year paper tonight's trading at 2.18% in Italy uh, for a 30-year piece of paper. And oh, by the way, in the late 90s, w- before the euro was created and Italians is- were issuing their currency in lira, I have nothing against Italy. It's a wonderful country, and they will be fine in the long run. But prior to the euro, their debt issued in lira was trading at somewhere between 11 and 13%. Uh-huh. Tonight is the 30-year yeah, paper. trading much more rational uh, pricing. Right, right. So I think what you're going to see is in the nearer term is a repeat of what we saw when Greece had all its problems in 2011 and 12, and you saw a widening in the peripheral debt in Europe, including Italy, Spain, Portugal, and others, and Greece, uh, relative to, particularly relative to Germany. I think the German yield curve is so negative because the smart money has already figured out 
that if the Eurozone does break up and there's more Brexits to follow, which we believe there will be in other countries, uh-huh. uh, maybe sooner than later uh, uh-huh. with major elect, that if that was to happen, you will be getting a nice windfall in your negative interest rated German bond because they'll start issuing marks. And the mark <laughs> on the currency will, will, bo- will boost 20, 30% relative, whatever the number will be, to the basket of, the, of their surrounding neighbors. So that's it raises so many questions that uh, the complexity of all these things uh, w- would seem to cause tremendous political problems because most people, you know, most citizens of advanced economies just don't have a clue how banking finance works. Yeah, I would and agree. And it's already expressing itself in political disorder. No question. No question. And you could take it I I I oftentimes when I when I meet with clients I remind them I I tell people if the bond market was quoted in price instead of yield, we'd all know that it's a bubble. And a good example is a 30-year German bond tonight is trading at 150. For those people out there that invest in bonds, 100 or par is what a bond will get when you mature. And most bonds are issued at what's called par mm-hmm. uh, at 100. And you get 100 back or $1,000 per bond back when it matures, whatever you've got a short-term maturity, you've got a 30-year bond or, or a 50-year bond, what, what have you. The point I'm making is the bond prices around the world are at all-time highs. At a time when supply and demand, there's been massive issuance of bonds. I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's like the internet bubble, right? You had all sure. these internet companies going public. You had all these shares of dot-com companies, and yet their valuations were through the roof at all-time highs. Now, that something is going to break at some point in time. That's not sustainable. We all know that. We just don't know when. Um, so that's, that's, that's part of what's taking place. And to your point about, and so people don't, you know, the bond market is very highly institutionalized. They, they get home, they watch Jim Cramer tell them that the yield is, by the way, the 10-year yield tonight is trading at 1.2% and their eyes glaze over and they right. don't recognize what that really means. Sure. Um, it, it means a lot because when the risk-free rate, our government bonds, our rates that we hear on TV every night is near zero or negative, it highly skews uh, and 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 makes the other assets that we that we finance with with interest rates, uh, you know, it 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 screws them up, right? Well, it, <laughs> when you when you uh, when you screw around with the basic price of money, you're basically deforming all the pricing in all markets. That's right. I mean, yeah. you wonder. I was going to say, you wonder why all the companies are making their earnings and yet their top lines aren't growing very much. Mm-hmm. If you watch all the corporate earnings coming in <clears throat> as investors, watch these numbers, you'll see the top lines flat or just barely moving. <clears throat> but they seem to be able to grow their earnings by 10, 15, 20%. And one of the reasons is that is they're able to buy back stock. Now, how do they buy back stock if they're not creating a lot of cash flow or they don't have a lot of cash? Well, many companies have issued debt. Mm-hmm. at these low interest rates and taken a huge bond offering and use that cash to buy back stock so that they make their earnings number look better. So, uh, again, nothing wrong with that, nothing illegal with that, but that's some of the skewing that's taking place. If, I'm, if I can borrow long-term money uh, as a corporation, which yeah. has never been the case at these low interest rates, and use it and buy back stock and make my number and get my bonus, it's not a bad deal. Not a well, bad we, you end up with a financial system that is really just a matrix of racketeering. And that's the unfortunate thing. Well, one of the things, that, I want to change the subject a little bit and get back to something we were talking about before, the, the, the prospect of, of a high dollar in uh, a situation where, where other currencies are crashing and burning. And, um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that the prospect is pretty good that the dollar is going to go higher. But, of course, there are a lot of consequences for that, and they're not necessarily good. Agree. 
And, uh, and what, what are some of them? Well, I mean, the first ones are uh, getting back to the S&P 500 and the earnings of corporations. Uh, if the S&P 500 or the S&P 100, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the Apple computers and so forth that sell uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of their, of their uh, widgets – or software, or cars, or what have you, overseas, then it has strong implications and, and can and negatively affect earnings dramatically. Yeah, uh, dramatically. the that, export economy of the USA. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things that Japan's struggling with, because they've seen a 15% rally in the yen mm-hmm. over the last six to, six to nine months, and they're an export-driven economy. And uh, <clears throat> that's why <clears throat> I think it's a good bet over the next month, three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, uh, it's a very good bet to look at the yen as a, as a currency that's going to start weakening. They have to weaken that currency. It's, it's up or out for them. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, well, you know, my so, theory is they're, they're, <clears throat> they're going to be the first advanced nation to go medieval. <laughs> they could. They could. You know, because they, they got nowhere else to go. But they do have a wonderful memory of the Edo period of Japanese history, which was actually a pretty, pretty great way to live. Uh, we'll see if they go back there. <laughs> um, to to also shift again, um, uh, it also raises the question of you know we, uh, it astounds me that we've been punishing savers and and punishing pension funds and punishing insurance companies for the last uh, you know decade, and, and especially with pensions that that. Um, we haven't heard a peep out of out of groups like AARP and and you know uh, the whatever whatever political groups have formed to you know represent uh, older people. And uh, don't you find that remarkable that 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 there's been no complaints about that, and and yet you know people who save money in traditional ways uh, can get absolutely no gain on their investments. No, no question. Um, you, you do. You do start to see signs. Um, uh, people are talking about it. I saw Larry Fink the other day uh, from um, Black, is it, uh, Blackstone or BlackRock. Uh, Black excuse Black me, BlackRock, uh, one of the largest uh, you know ETF mutual fund fund companies. Uh, and he mentioned that it is, uh, and, and others have done the same thing. Have mentioned that these interest rates are destroying uh, savers, destroying insurance companies, to trying to fund their long term liabilities, and of course pension and private, both private and public pension. Funds from the state of California, the state of New York, and so right. forth. Uh, uh, but and and you know, but I, I look at it as a Fed that's running out of options, both direct and indirect. I mean, if you think about indirect stimulus, that's all these low interest rates and these zero interest rates and this free money is. It's an indirect stimulus because it forces people with money, people with investable assets, the savers to take risk that forces them into riskier assets in the stock market into funding maybe a new startup or what have you because the alternative is zero or in some cases negative and so you're right it is it, I, I mean I, I actually again not to talk down about these people running the Fed are these people bad people and my this is again my my uh, my opinion they're not bad people uh, they've grown up in academic institutions uh, they're taking over this Keynesian approach of what do we do next uh, uh, they're not looking at history as much as some of your, your other former speakers on your shows have talked about and you've talked about as well. They're not studying the history books as well as they should. Uh, and they're buying themselves time, as people always do, to stay in, stay in power until they get out or what have you. Are they bad people? No. But, but it's very clear this isn't working. Uh, and it's going to have uh, you know, effects on, on – I mean, I mean, the wealthy that I see – 
including my 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 82 year old mother who is a retiree with modest savings that is, has been forced to, take it, to put money out in the risk curve, including stocks, take mm-hmm. dividend, buy dividends, so forth. Um, I think, James, until we get the crash, the next 10%, 20% correction, when that happens and you start blowing up 10, 20, 30, 40% of people's portfolios that have been able to sustain it through a rising stock market or real estate market or cash flow from their rental properties, when that starts to blow that's when we're going to get a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it social unrest, but it'll be a form of social unrest because there's no question these, including pension funds and private. I mean, the, when the tide comes out, we're going to see who's been swimming naked. And you know, there are plenty of people that have taken it, have had been forced to take risks that they really normally would not have taken uh, in prior times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's this, that's where this distortion, uh, you know, is, is, is going to have some major effects on, on, on the global economy as well as, of course, local economy here. And so I, I, it does the, I, I don't, I, you know, cognitive dissonance, our fund was actually set up to let people know that, listen, nobody has a crystal ball of what's going to happen to the timing when it's going to happen. But if you believe in cycles, if you've got your eyes open up and you're looking at off the horizon and you see the tsunami swirling in the water and you know it's going to come on shore eventually, we encourage people to take small amounts of their portfolio and get it invested in, in, in things that are alternative type investments, different strategies that might be able to give them some more protection. And that's what it's really all about. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping your listeners will take away from our conversation today, uh, that they'll, they'll talk to their advisors. They'll talk to their, uh, their, their, their people that are working with them or if they're, they're doing it themselves and open their eyes to what's taking place because it is significant. And I, I, we will hit – we are past – we're late in the cycle – we will hit turbulence. There will be, you know, buckle your seatbelts. You know, you're not going to be able to walk around the cabin anymore here for a while. And, uh, you know, that's where we're heading. And it's not trying to say it's doomsday, but people should be, you know, getting buckled up and preparing for the turbulence ahead. Uh, we, we don't hear a whole lot about the derivative situation other than, you know, once in a while people acknowledge that there seems to be an awful lot of that out there, an awful lot of uh, contracts out there. But what, what, what do you think, with all of the instability in banking right now and the cross-collateralization uh, relationships, what do you think the chances are of a derivatives accident? Well, we saw it. Uh, we've seen it in hedge funds, the long-term uh, capital. We saw that in the late 90s. They blew up and had uh, uh, you know, a ripple effect throughout the global economy. Uh, James, I think it's high. Um, is that going to be the catalyst or the, or the, or the second or third domino to fall? I don't know. Um, but, but no, there, there's no question there's massive leverage in the system. Um, and again, it gets back to a little bit of the Austrian economic model. And I don't call myself an Austrian economic person by person. Hi, this is Jim. We had a Skype connection break. And we were offline for a couple of minutes, and then we reconnected, and we were able to resume. So here's my continuing conversation with Kirk Bostrom. I understand that you're concerned about the effect of robots on the economy that's coming down at us. And uh, can you just talk for a minute about what that is like for you, what it seems like? Yeah, well, uh, uh, you know, again, I, I'm a little skewed to, to say it lightly living here in Silicon Valley, where when I walk out of my office and, and get in my car and drive about a minute outside my parking lot or 30 seconds outside my parking lot, um, I'll for sure see a Google a Google robotics car, electric car, right? These cars that drive around uh, with, uh, there's a guy sitting there holding a, 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 a throttle like a plane, but he's not doing anything. 
and the cars run. And there's a tremendous amount of money being spent by both Apple and Google. The cars are everywhere here preparing for um, the age of robotics as it relates to cars, uh, uh, artificial intelligence as it relates to many jobs that could be manned by uh, simple robotics. I, I, I give the example of Starbucks. You really don't have to have five people in a Starbucks making mochas uh, and cappuccinos. Um, in fact, you might only need one that you don't have to pay a, a big salary to, you don't mm-hmm. have to pay a pension to, and you don't have to put on any insurance. And by the way, you won't get sued if mm-hmm. you do something wrong or you spill hot coffee on the person. So uh, this is something we think I, I'm seeing a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of uh, from some very smart people. Uh, and, and it concerns me from a structural perspective that um, uh, like 20, like uh, what, 80 years ago when we had the industrial revolution and you had a thousand people working in the farms and you had a combustion engine tractor that came along and took 90% of them out of work because you could do 10 times the amount of work and, and without all the people in less time and more effective. Um, uh, there is something underlying the economy right now that's taking place out here that could be very uh, disruptive to our, the structure of the real economy both here in the U.S. and abroad. It'll be great for this very small percentage of people that are creating the robots and working on these programs. Uh, be great for Google. Be great for uh, you know, some of these other companies uh, and people. Uh, but for the broad perspective of how we educate people, for how we have worked in the way you and I grew up, uh, James, and how we were educated, um, we just, uh, I don't know if we're ready for that quite yet if we get to that. And I will remind you that there wasn't, it wasn't that long ago when, when Bill Gates sat in front of this thing called the personal computer and said, everybody will have one of these on their desk one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, people said, that's insanity. What would any of us need a computer for, let alone, you know, uh, maybe the Department of Defense could buy a few. But other than that, none of and And so it, 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 it's, it seems a long way away, but I am getting a lot of and seeing a lot of that out here. And it does concern me for the way we educate our population and so forth uh, and, 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 and where we're going here very quickly. It could lead to, obviously, um, a high number of people in unemployment. So those kind of things, if we don't try to address it sooner than later. Well, it's fraught with uh, strange internal contradictions, like uh, you know the idea that the mass motoring economy, which is after all a consumer economy, right? You know, it, it cannot work in a social system that is made up of you know ninety eight percent of idle serfs or, or idle peasants who don't 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 do anything, and right. just you know two percent of the people who. Um, uh, supposedly would profit from all of these um, technological wonders. I, I don't really see that happening. And um, I, I do find a lot of that uh, techno-narcissism kind of amusing, like the idea a few years ago, the, the, before the driverless car came along, there was this idea called the intelligent highway. And the idea was you'd embed a computer uh, intelligence in the roadway itself and it would communicate with cars that had computers in them and allow ev- everybody to drive really close together to manage the traffic and <laughs> right. optimize the flows, etc. You know, remove traffic jams. And, and I, it always amused me because at any given time right now, uh, you know, 11% of the people out there are driving without insurance. They're only pretending to be insured. What would happen if, uh, you know, 11% of the people were only pretending to have computerized cars? Right, right. And there's got to be some point, you know, where, you know, a transitional phase where you have a bunch of, you know, driverless computer cars on the road and uh, also quite a few human cars on the road. 
Right, right. No, no question. And, you know, and it's not a, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly, it, it could be further away, although you have people, obviously, to your point about some of the techno-narcissism that, that does exist, uh, certainly does exist here and in other places. Uh, I know Bezos has talked about drone delivery for Amazon, right? And yeah. that's, that's a, I can't get my arms around that either. So forget I, about I, it. I mean, <laughs> I, I even think that, that the, the basic model of Amazon as it exists now can't possibly uh, go on very much longer because it depends on every single um, uh, purchased item making a separate UPS trip to you know to every person who bought it and uh, you know I think that that's probably an insane model in a an economy that's got to worry about uh, dwindling oil resources. Right. Well, you know, to your to your point, if we if we go if we get to a place of one hundred and fifty dollar a barrel oil again, or whatever, or we run out of it completely, as as you're the expert in a lot of these things, uh, that would change the model overnight, right? Well, uh, the it, oil picture has changed quite a bit, and 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 uh, you know we've had very low prices for the last two years, but I think you can boil it down into like two or three sentences. Okay, uh, the first sentence is there's no more cheap oil. Really, the oil is now all expensive oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is that oil over $75 a barrel in today's money um, destroys economies, in th- it destroys industrial economies, and oil under $75 a barrel in today's money destroys oil companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you're either on one side or the other. We were at $100 plus oil for several years recently, and it absolutely clobbered uh, industrial economies. Right. And right. now, for two years, we've been at sub-75, or, you know, below $75 a barrel. Today, it's like down to 41 plus. And that's destroying oil companies because they simply can't, you know, if, they, if it costs them $75 a barrel to pull the stuff out of the ground, they can't sell it for $40 and stay in business very long. So, right, right, right. So, and I think that uh, the public, and of course our leaders in politics as well as business, fail to understand that and how that affects our, our laws. Right. What, what is your feeling on, on where we go in oil? I'm just curious uh, briefly on your, your, your projection on where the price of oil goes. In the well, next I think that uh, you, what you're basically going to see is a, st- a stair step down in production. You know, there are going to be more and more oil companies who are going to be crapping out and dropping out and unable to really cover their costs, especially as the, you know, the bonds are defaulted on the, and, and they've been running a lot of their operations on, uh, you know, junk bonds for the last five years. And um, so we'll see a a stair step down in production. Uh, We're liable to see uh, another oscillation in oil prices, but it'll have the same effect. If it goes up to, you know, $100 a barrel again, it's going to just start destroying the business infrastructure of industrial economies. Right, right. And if it goes below... If it fall, if, if if there's more demand destruction and it falls below 75, then it'll destroy more oil companies. So, I don't see a good outcome from that. But uh, but uh, and you know that's of course been a, a major part of my worldview for the last mm, 10, 15 years. But I want to ask you, if we're in for an epical economic reset to some other way of living or doing business or having an economy, what's your model for how that occurs and what's your fantasy of where it where it takes us and what's your idea of how orderly or disorderly the process might be well it's a it's a great question james and i I wish i could give you 
um, a, a real articulate, well-informed answer. But I, but I, but I, the only thing I do know, which I probably can at the end of the day, but what I do know is what history will tell us in terms of how we get there, whatever there is going to look like, uh, and and it's probably not going to happen um, without tremendous uh, volatility. It's not going to happen without tremendous most likely social unrest. And I'm not necessarily just talking about the U.S. here. Um, war is obviously something you, you're reading more and more about. Geopolitical risk, uh, as I might have mentioned, I can't remember earlier in our conversation, are, are as high as ever in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't pick out anywhere in the world that isn't, doesn't have, uh, uh, isn't, the tensions aren't as high as they've been. And again, in pretty much any, any place you, you, you want to talk about, uh, particularly in the Middle East, of course. So, um, I, I, I think, you know, uh, to get a reset, which is probably coming at some point in time, uh, maybe sooner than later and sooner than people could ever believe. Uh, I, I tell people I think this, this is unfolding so quickly from my eyes when I look at what's taking place. Uh, when I take the yields crashing t- as low as they are, I tell people, take a look at the, inter- the rates falling in, in overseas in here, going negative. Take that chart, print it out on a piece of paper, flip it over upside down and turn it, you're going to see a melt-up. You're going to see a, a chart that looks eerily like NASDAQ in 2000. Hmm. You're going to see a chart that looks very much like housing prices in the U.S. You're going to see a chart that looks very much like the oil boom when oil prices went to 150 and crashed and burned. Mm-hmm. So we are getting a melt-up top, or in this case, a melt-up bottom, melt-down bottom in interest rates. And my point being, it's probably going to come uh, with some very challenging economic times, tremendous volatility in the financial markets, tremendous volatility in, in relationships. And I think, quite frankly, this whole move, political uh, uh, move uh, that we're seeing both here in the U.S. between Bernie Sanders on one end and Donald Trump on the other, who would have ever believed you oh, would have yeah. had two outside? Who would ever believe you're seeing the Euro skeptics throughout Europe Brexit and now the Europe skeptics? There are 32 referendums now floating in Europe for change uh, yeah. across some of the my, – my only point of that is this is a, is, is, is a fallout from a failed monetary and fiscal policy, global policy that just simply is running out of steam. And to your point about oil prices, it's certainly not the only one in the mix, but it is one of the charts that I show investors when I say, you know, is the global economy slowing? We can look at China's growth and so forth, slowing and so forth. But, but oil prices tend to reflect, regardless of there's supply and demand things going on there too and shale and all that, but mm-hmm. they tend to reflect what's going on in the global economy. When oil prices are firm, or the global economy tends to be bad, a little bit better. Uh, when the global prices have been falling like they have over the last few years, uh, the oil, you, you can correlate it certainly to uh, global growth. I think the IMF has cut global growth this year in 2016. I think I'm correct when I say it four times. I know it's at least three. They've revised the number downward three times. And so mm-hmm. this thing is moving very, very quickly. Um, and I'm hopeful. I don't want to steal a line from some of the other speakers, but I too am hopeful that – if there is a reset coming, which there very well could be, that it is coordinated in some shape or fashion with our allies and with those that want to uh, create peace and do it in a, in a way that can create some stability to, to the system. Um, that being said, you know, history doesn't give us that uh, – I hate to be this way. It doesn't give us a lot of hope for that to happen. I hope I'm wrong. I hope, well, I hope. history doesn't <laughs> give us forward guidance the way the central banks do. <laughs> You're right. You're right. No, absolutely right. And I. And again, they, they, they can keep their. 
There are more uh, things to be played. I think there's helicopter. I think there's two things that Yellen has mentioned negative interest rates. They've run a study already and they've talked about, oh, we're not going to do it here quite yet, but they've talked about negative interest rate policy here. Uh, that is a possibility here in the United States, uh, which would be, which would have uh, even further ramifications on, on markets. Uh, and then, of course, this whole idea behind the hel- helicopter money. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think we're talking about it. Uh, it probably doesn't, it probably is one of those things that you have to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing because once you burn through the stimulus, you're going to look for more. Again, history has been our guide with fiscal stimulus. I mean, you, you give people tax refunds, they go spend it, and then they okay, what's next? What are you going to do for me next? And so yeah. this, I think the only way to play this gets back to the Austrians, which is, you know, the central bank can control the bonds, and they could buy up all the bonds. Heck, I don't know. They could buy the stocks. They're buying stocks in, the, in Japan, sure. the bank of Japan. But at some point in time, you can't, they cannot control the currency markets, and it is a race to the bottom. If we start to go down that path, which is which is very possible, we could even get an indication of a little bit of that tonight with what we see out of Japan. Uh-huh. Well, uh, Kirk Bostrom uh, of Strategic Preservation Partners, I want to thank you very much for coming on my podcast. And I'm going to check in with you again, uh, if it's okay with you. I'd love to do it. And James, thank you for, uh, for the invitation. Really enjoyed it today. I look forward to doing it again sometime. We'd be honored to do it. Okay, we will ride again. <laughs> 